1: Hey everyone, today's guest and co-host is the legendary Steve-O, whose new movie, Jackass Forever, just premiered worldwide. And after seeing it, you'll never think about bees or honey in quite the same way. Steve-O and I talk about how a broken heart and a video camera led to his unique career, meditating for 41 minutes a day, how he tracked down and met Motley Crue at age 13, the Steve-O bucket list comedy tour, his dream of establishing an animal sanctuary, and a lot more. Our Unqualified segment begins with a call from Lizzie, who, after finally setting a date for her wedding, was blindsided when her older sister spontaneously scheduled her own wedding just weeks prior. Our next conversation is with Paula, whose 19-year-old son met a girl online, then unexpectedly moved across the country to be with her. As always, thank you for listening to our podcast. If you have a question and would like to talk with us, please look for the link at unqualified.com. I would love to hear from you.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to Unqualified with your host, Anna Ferris.
1: Hey! Hello! Steve, you're in the middle of a press day. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much for doing this. Oh,
2: well, thank you.
1: What has been the question that you keep getting? Is it about the bees?
2: The bees have gotten a little bit of attention, but this press day is not any different than any other jackass press day. The main question is, was there one stunt that you regret? And everybody who asks this question feels genuinely convinced that it's an original question.
1: (laughs) This is why I ask this question in this way.
2: Right, and I don't mind the question. My answer is always the same, and I, I really genuinely feel that not only do I not regret any of the stunts, I actually regret that I didn't do more. Particularly I regret some of the stunts that that I wimped out on. There was one that was so epic, it was called the Homemade Hang Glider. And they had these people like literally with just sticks and tape make like this badass like double wing hang glider. And if I just wouldn't have wimped out, that would have been so huge. If I had another crack at that today, I really think that I would make that count.
1: I don't know. I think the universe like played itself out.
2: Possible. <laughs> very possible. And I, and I do have strong feelings about the universe and my relationship with it. So.
1: Oh, will you elaborate on that?
2: I really, really religiously meditate every day. I'm strict about averaging 41 minutes of meditation every day. And I have for, uh, I think 760 straight days. I'm over two years into it. And, you know, it's not something that you can really put your finger on and like objectively point to the results of it. But I have this unshakable faith that this practice really kind of plugs me in to the universe, you know, that there's this sort of a partnership going on, a harmony kind of.
1: May I ask why 41 minutes?
2: Yeah, for sure. With mantra-based meditation, like um, Transcendental Meditation and Vedic Meditation, it's suggested that you do twice a day and 20 minutes each time. And I keep track of it on an app on my phone, and I would just hate for my average to fall below 40 minutes. So I make sure I keep it at 41 (laughs) to my little buffer zone to make sure I'm not coming up short.
1: So. I want to talk with you a little bit about relationships. How old were you when you first fell in love?
2: I mean, if we were to recognize how complicated the word love is, Mm -hmm. I think that we would have to pick that question apart. You know, my first experience, which I would have called love, was just so terribly unhealthy. You know, I think that there's love and then there's neediness. I think that when we get hurt in love, it's because we're approaching it from kind of the wrong angle as a needy person. And that's where it uh, kind of backfires on us. So I don't know. I think that in order to be in a healthy relationship, I feel pretty strongly that you have to be okay on your own. You know, like you can't look for a relationship to complete you. Because then, sort of by definition, you're incomplete and not really bringing to the relationship what one needs. So as I interpret the question, I find myself asking, but have I yet, even as I'm 47 years old, ever really experienced true love? You know, like, because there are these human flaws. But I feel strongly that I'm in the first truly healthy relationship of my life now.
1: Can you tell us about a heartbreak? and how you got over it?
2: For sure. I was at the University of Miami, a freshman in 1992. Within two weeks of class starting my freshman year, I was placed on final disciplinary probation. I would had my room raided.
1: Wait a minute, are you living in a dorm? Are you in a fraternity? Living
2: in a dorm with an architecture student who was putting himself through college by working multiple jobs and very studious. And here I show up and I'm just drinking and being loud and smoking pot all over the place, keeping
1: him up at night. He told on you. He did. you you (laughs) You were being gentle with him.
2: Ah, I I wasn't being gentle with anything. (laughs) I absolutely deserved it. And they kicked me out of that dorm and relocated me to another one. And in that second dorm, I found this, this love. Her name was Tracy and she was awesome.
1: Wait, I kind of want to know the impact of like first seeing Tracy. I don't know that I remember first
2: seeing her I just remember that I really, I had already developed this horrible habit, which we refer to now as ghosting people. But it was a pattern you know, from my very first relationship and well into my adult life, where I would become infatuated with a girl and really pour on the charm to kind of get her on the hook. But then once, Having her on the hook, you know, I would lose interest. It would just go out like a a switch, and I would never intend it. But once that switch flipped, then all of a sudden, I just had to get away from the person. And ultimately, it was just the worst way you could possibly treat someone. You know, I mean, I was not only... Failing to treat women the way that I wanted to be treated myself, I was specifically treating them the way I most fear being treated myself. You know, I clearly have issues with abandonment and rejection, and I would be pouring on the charm, like working on it in recovery. I really identified it as just like sociopathic behavior. Like pouring the charm in a way that was ultimately misleading.
1: I would imagine that you had a tendency to idealize
2: Sure. Sure. Yeah. And so the point being that Tracy was the first example of a relationship where I didn't lose interest, where I wasn't the one who ultimately withdrew and hurt the other person. And I was so happy in this relationship with her that I just stopped going to class. You know, I was failing Really miserably, and she ultimately told me that she wanted to be somebody that you know really cared about growing up to you know become successful, that she was working really hard, she was looking into her future, and she just couldn 't see me in it because I was just failing. you know she told me that I was going to be a loser. it hurt me so much, and I was just a kid, but I was so hurt, and it was this kind of difficult time in my life because I couldn't bring myself to go to class. I couldn't keep a job. And now I'm like failing out. I got kicked out of the dorms and I wanted to just act out. And I wanted Tracy to be worried about me. I wanted her to think I was gonna die. And so I would go out with my video camera and jump off of rooftops and film myself. These were my first stunts. We're an okay. exercise in trying to make Tracy, you know, worry about me, maybe try to win her back. It was crazy. I was videotaping all of these things. Like the one time I ever went to the library at the University of Miami was to drunken rappel off of it, like tying ropes to the banister and just throwing myself off.
1: <laughs> wow. So I assume that wasn't very effective.
2: Yeah, very ineffective as far as it went with Tracy. But you know, I had found the video camera through skateboarding. And in all of my effort to impress people with my skateboarding, when I showed them my skateboarding videos, it was like, oh yeah, okay, that's cool, it's cool. But once I started throwing myself off of buildings and videotaping that and then showing people that footage. The contrast between the way people reacted to the footage of me doing really dangerous stuff, like off of buildings. Like, I saw people react. I saw people really in shock at what I was showing them. And I thought to myself, wow, you know, like the reaction I'm getting from these stunts, I'm onto something here. And as I left the University of Miami, you know, having been kicked out, having failed out, you know, in the process of dropping out. People were asking me, like, well, what are you going to do now? And I just said, with my home video camera, I'm going to film crazy stunts, and I'm going to become a crazy, famous stuntman. And everyone who I told that to felt so sorry for me. (laughs) There was no precedent whatsoever. You got to understand, this was 1993. Like, I don't even know if they had the real world out, you know? Home video cameras were not— a household item. There was zero precedent for making a career out of home video cameras. And everybody felt I was such a tragic loser, that it was such a tragedy what I was trying to do. And I didn't even know that I believed in it.
1: You were going through like these extreme emotions.
2: Yeah. For sure. And I couldn't keep a job. I knew that. I couldn't get through school. I knew that. I felt that I lacked the skills needed to survive in the real world. I anticipated that I was going to fail at life and die like very young. And what I was doing with the video camera, really above all else, was just trying to hurry up to pack my message into the bottle so that it it could receive its audience after I died. You know, I was like, I felt that my video footage would outlive me and that this was my way to have a legacy, to be immortal. And I never thought that I would be successful in life, but because I cared so much about leaving something behind, I've really made some crazy stuff happen, and here I am.
1: What's your relationship now with death?
2: It's such a great question. I thought you were gonna say, what's my relationship now with Tracy? And we did keep in touch. <laughs> oh, you did? We did, you know, it was so, <laughs> what a douche I was. Like every year after we broke up, like I would mail to her like a new VHS videotape of like the bitch and stuff. Like, oh, if you thought I was red last year, you know, she would get a new installment every year. And each year was genuinely more impressive. Yeah, I'm sure. And then all of a sudden, like, company sponsors were being incorporated. It's it, like, she was the fire under my ass. She said I was going to be a loser. <laughs> you know, like, that was the most motivating thing anyone ever said to me, was Tracy telling me that I was going to be a loser. And the relationship with her and, and trying to impress her and show her that I wasn't a loser drove me so much. But my relationship with death, I think that the human experience is uh, such a catch-22 because we only have one instinct, which is to survive, but we only have one guarantee, which is we won't. <laughs> you know, So the one thing that we really want to not happen is the only thing that we can be sure will happen. So we're just in this catch-22, this like, cruel prank of an existence. And I think that if there's really a meaning of life or a purpose for life, it's to wrap our heads around our mortality. And I think that there are three major ways that people do that. They turn to religion because religion promises that death is going to be okay and we will go to heaven and and whatnot.
1: There's an insurance there. Yeah. Then the second
2: way is with procreation. They talk about the family jewels and it's okay that I'm going to be dead because my name will live on and I'll have a legacy in my children. And religion and parenthood was never for me, so I fell into the third bucket, which is, you know, sort of the artist, I think. Like, cavemen were scrawling stick figures on cave walls because they knew they were leaving something that would outlive them. To have a sense
1: of legacy.
2: Yeah, to leave something permanent. So that was kind of my approach, and the way that I was doing it, like, I think that a lot of my stunts were uh, acting out in anger at my mortality, you know, it's almost like, well, I gotta be dead. And so I, you know, like I'm gonna dangle off a building. I'm gonna act out in frustration at my mortality because I felt that I was gonna be dead. And I really did. I never thought I would live to be 30 years old. And now I'm pushing 50 and my relationship with death has changed so much. I mean, when I got sober in 2008.
1: God, good for you.
2: Well, thank you. I couldn't have been closer to death at that time, you know, in 2008. God, what a year it was to get sober, to commit myself to being in recovery, to start taking care of myself for the first time. I was confronted with the most terrorizing, you know, the idea that I wasn't going to die. Like most people would be quite happy to know that they're not gonna die. But when I got sober in 2008, the idea that like, okay, I've made this career as an attention whore. In 2008, I had effectively burned all of the bridges. I had no prospects in my professional life. You know, I was now learning in recovery that we need to deflate the ego. So how am I gonna be an attention whore if I have to deflate the ego to maintain my sobriety? I didn't know that I could continue to have a career as an attention whore. And I hadn't been like wise about business or saving money. So now maybe my earnings potential has just dropped off a cliff. Maybe I have no career anymore. I don't have a lot of money saved. On top of that, it was 2008. So the financial crisis came and decimated what money I did have. And then on top of all of that, now I'm thinking, holy fuck, I'm taking care of myself for the first time and I'm confronted with the possibility that I'm only halfway through my life. Maybe I'm gonna live many more decades and I have no idea how I'm gonna support myself through that time. I was so scared of not dying.
1: When did the terror of that ebb, do you think?
2: I don't know that it ever did end. I think that my priorities in life changed a great deal. Where initially all I cared about was that I would be remembered. You know, I just wanted to be remembered because I wanted to be immortal. And then now, as I've grown older, as I've evolved, I think that I care less about being remembered after I'm dead and I care more about being happy while I'm alive. And I definitely became more mindful about my future and being wise about my business, about my savings. And then the more that I've been sort of successful in this later half of my career, I reached a point where I felt, okay, now I'm gonna be okay. I've achieved financial security. And so I found myself becoming more ambitious about, um, you know, like I didn't wanna have kids, I knew that. And I got a vasectomy, I made a big stunt video out of that. And I just, my girl and I, we wanna pour ourselves into helping animals. So we decided that we wanna buy a big property and open up our own animal sanctuary.
1: How fantastic.
2: And I'm more motivated than ever to be a successful businessman, to add revenue streams, to be smart with my money and to save because now I really have this bigger goal to work towards which is to have a retirement property which is this big involved animal sanctuary. So yeah, I'm energized and I'm motivated.
1: What an incredible transformation. I was imagining how lonely you must have felt in the beginning. And if just the idea of Tracy kind of fulfilled that desire for an intimate connection, then you just like redirected that passion.
2: I think that if you approach a relationship as something that you're looking to complete you, That's a
1: burden on a partner.
2: Right, it's like chopping up one of your legs and leaning on them. Like what you're gonna do is push them away. And so that was the problem in my relationship with Tracy. I wasn't okay on my own. And I think that a lot of people would benefit from the idea of not viewing relationships as an exercise in completing themselves, but rather worry about becoming complete to make a relationship work.
0: Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.
3: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70 percent of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites, so start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today
1: When you were younger, did you have any idols or was there a movie? You romanticized?
2: You know, if there's something that I romanticized, it was Motley Crue. Like, really, when I was 11 years old, when I first learned of Motley Crue and heard their album Shout at the Devil, and everything that that band sort of portrayed themselves as, you know, this idea of— stardom and excess and sex and drugs and rock and roll like the way that motley crew impacted me and my view of what rock stardom was like that profoundly affected me and i became obsessed with motley crew it was a very pivotal time in my life when i was 13 years old and motley Crue came to toronto where i was living Specifically, the concert was October 25th of 1987. And the day before the concert, I learned that Motley Crue was in town and gotten in trouble. So I deduced that they were in a hotel in Toronto and I just started calling every single hotel in the Yellow Pages from the beginning of the list and called every single one of them. What did you say to the? Well, I had run to my room and checked every tape cassette sleeve looking for a name of their manager. I guessed that they would check in under the name of their manager. And so I called every single hotel asking to be put through to Doc McGee's room. And after hours of calling hotels, I was put through to one Doc McGee's room. And the phone was answered by Doc McGee's brother, Scott McGee. I said, hello, is that Doc McGee? And he says, no, this is Doc's brother, Scott. Like, who's this? You know, and I, I was third. And then what'd you say? I said, as in Molly Crue. <laughs> and he's kind of frustrated a little bit. He asked, how did I get the number? And I told him, dude, I just called every hotel on the Yellow Pages. And he said, wait, are you kidding me? That's awesome. He asked me how would I like backstage passes to the concert. What? And that he could put me in the fifth row. And so my dad took me to the concert and took photos of me backstage with Tommy Lee and Nikki Six.
1: Got Oh man, what a guy. Yeah,
2: it was October 25th of 1987. And you know, like the pictures of me and Tommy Lee and Nikki Six, like all that long ago, like they're fascinating and they're all over the internet and I love it, I love it so much but more than anything about the actual interaction, like I had nothing to say to them. There was no meaningful conversation, but the fact that I found myself in that position, like with their arm around me and taking pictures, like the fact that I had made that happen, I think was the most empowering thing. Like I believe turned me into a monster where I just felt that with enough dedication, there's really nothing that I can't do, you know?
1: Yeah, you took the whole will. If there <laughs> yeah. is one, then there is a way to an amazing— right. yeah. And then after
2: that, every time a crappy report card came in, like every little thing in life that my dad was dissatisfied with, my dad would say to me, son, if you would just apply yourself, the way that you applied yourself to meeting Motley Crue, that <laughs> and like it kind of lived on as this curse— And then later on in a documentary about me, my dad said, when Steve sets his mind to it, he can accomplish anything. The problem is that's a fairly narrow slice of the pie. (laughs) (laughs) Like what I'm able to really apply myself to, I am unstoppable, but if I'm not passionate about it, then I'm basically useless. And as such, like I said, I could never keep a job. I could never go to class. I, could, I just couldn't do it. I was not qualified to do anything in life that I'm not supremely passionate about. And as such, it was going to be everything or nothing. I had no plan B. You know, I was going to become a crazy famous stuntman with my video camera, or I was going to be dead or in jail. <laughs> That's just all there was to it. And it's tragic, but it kind of worked out.
1: What drew you to your girl, your partner?
2: Oh, you know, like, you know, I had that troubling pattern with women. And after I got clean and sober, I found myself acting out sexually even more, and maybe not even more, but, you know, my journey in recovery resulted in my moral compass kind of becoming more sensitive, and what my conscience could allow for became less and less. You know, I really found it necessary to address my uh, compulsive acting out and I found my way into a whole new program of recovery around that and in that recovery for sexual addiction, I uh, really identified my goal as doing the work to become the man that the love of my life deserves because I recognized that up to that point in my life, and even after that, that if I were to meet the woman who was perfect for me, then that would just be a shame because I would have been utterly useless to that woman. And going back to the idea of relationships only working if two people are complete, and it took a lot of work. I was very fortunate too to not already have a marriage that I blew up and then you know, a life that I shattered and tried okay. to put together all the pieces. But rather I was a single guy and I set out to preemptively do the work to become the man that the love of my life deserved. And it just worked out that way. With that work having been done, I met my girl on January 7th of 2017. So yeah, over five years ago now.
1: You are good with dates.
2: I really am, huh? <laughs> <laughs> But uh, I met her on a job. She's a production designer and a prop stylist and a wardrobe specialist. She works in the art department on various media projects. You know, like she was wearing a ring, which I think was sort of a dummy ring, like a creep repellent. (laughs) like
1: on her ring finger. Yeah,
2: so I just assumed that she was off limits and spoken for. But there's definitely uh, some chemistry between us that day of shooting. And um, she sent me a message. She slid into my DM a number of days after the fact. And we got together, you know, we had dinner. We dated very responsibly by a pretty responsible dating plan. We didn't even kiss for, like, the first month. We didn't see each other more than, like, once a week.
1: You, like, laid Solid groundwork.
2: Yeah, for sure. And then once it was on, it was on.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I love that. I'm really, really happy for you, and I'm so impressed by your strength.
2: I mean, I think it's my acknowledgement of my lack of strength. (laughs) You know, like, in 12-step recovery, our first step is admitting powerlessness and recognizing that we have no strength whatsoever and that our willpower is more of a liability than an asset you know, kind of accept help from a power greater than ourselves.
1: When you think of the idea of home, what does that mean to you?
2: The first thing that popped in my head was, uh, I know that home is where I live with Lux but I just recently bought my own tour bus. Rad. Yeah, it's really rad. I got into stand-up comedy. I first tried it in 2006. And then in 2010, I dove in in earnest and I began touring, like relentlessly touring the comedy club circuit, which I did for 11 years. And then just coming out of the pandemic, you know, all of that work got me to a point where I graduated to theaters. And so I've got this crazy theater tour Called the Bucket List Tour. And what it is, is a list of stunts that were just so over the top ambitious that, like, I had the ideas for years and years and years, but they just weren't in the cards because they were so, like, crazy and ambitious. And then I just set about doing them all. And I made this act about just how crazy they are, how carrying out all of these stunts, like, invariably had serious implications on my relationship with my girl, whose name is Lux. So it's sort of a love story. And after each bit in the show, I screen the footage of the culmination of the stunt. And it's just, it brings all of my worlds together in one, like this craft of stand-up comedy that I worked for 11 years to develop and all of the crazy stunts. And it's just this multimedia experience, which is genuinely selling out like thousand seat theaters on a regular basis. That must
1: feel amazing.
2: Ah, it's so much fun. I love that the model for my comedy club tour was shows only on the weekends and all in one spot. So that meant, like, go to the airport and fly to some city and check into a hotel and do all, you know. And then every week was the same week on repeat. Whereas now, I'm on my tour bus. And it just magically arrives at this bitchin' ass theater where I'm going to do my show. And then I get back on the bus and it would be disrespectful to Lux to call the tour bus my home, and that's why my reaction to the question was, ooh, I find myself thinking, and I felt like- It's all of it, though. Right, I mean, it was just this like, ooh, I feel naughty, I feel like it's a, you know, a guilty pleasure kind of a thing, but the first thing I thought of was my killer tour bus with the obnoxious rap job that says Steve-O, the bucket list, and fuck, I love that thing.
1: I love that answer.
2: (laughs) And Lux will be on my tour bus with for the whole next leg. This is the end of February, starting like February 16th. We've got like a bunch of dates in Texas and then Tulsa and then a run through Southern California. Yeah, are you coming to LA? March 10th, I'll be in LA. right. Yeah, oh my God, I can't wait for that. The reason why these ideas on my bucket list like hadn't happened, I had a medical professional in disguise administer general anesthesia drugs into an IV in my vein while I was riding a bicycle, which was so
1: flagrantly illegal. It's so brilliantly conceived, though, in its bizarreness.
2: Everything that I did for my bucket list show is quite literally on that level of insanity, and that's why it's so much fun. And the narrative of it, the theme that holds it all together is my relationship and how going through with all of these various stunts had like drastic implications on my relationship with Lux. So it really is a love story, and man... It's nuts. Like, I brought the jackass director, Jeff Tremaine, over to my house to screen a recording of my bucket list show because I thought that it would change the landscape of my career so much if this could be, you know, in all of its multimedia glory, a Netflix special. And I said, What do you think about directing it and bringing it to Netflix with me? And after watching it, he said, Netflix isn't going anywhere near this. (laughs) It's so utterly fucked up from start to finish. I don't see how they could do it. It's so outside of, you know, he said, that's not a criticism. He said, it's absolutely genius and it's you at this higher level. You've completely raised the bar, but it's just too fucked up. (laughs) And and I kind of love that.
1: I can't wait to see it. Okay, we are now going to take calls from our listeners. Lizzie is first. (laughs) Hi, Lizzie, how are you? Hi, I'm good, how are you? I'm great, you're here with Steve-O, who is just fucking rad. Hi, nice to meet you. Hey, likewise, thank you. Lizzie, will you tell us what's going on? Thank you for writing to us.
4: Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. Um, So essentially, I'm getting married this year. My fiance and I got engaged toward the start of the pandemic and things were weird in the world and still are a little weird. So we decided to have a longer engagement about a month ago, my sister got engaged as well, and they decided to have a short engagement. So their wedding's going to be a couple weeks before our wedding. <laughs> so basically, have been working through and processing what's going to happen and trying to work through all these conflicting emotions that I've been feeling lately.
1: Nothing brings it up like a wedding.
4: <laughs> totally, and then it just you know, planning a wedding in this environment is already weird and ridiculous. So just trying to figure out how to move forward and deal with everything that I'm feeling and cause the least amount of damage going forward. Right.
1: Okay, so Lizzie, in your letter, you guys have had this long engagement. Mm -hmm. And you've been together for quite a while. Eight
4: years. Yeah, long time. Steve is really good with like
1: (laughs) numbers, dates. And your sister announced her engagement about a month ago. Yep. When she presented this information to you, How did that go? Like the question behind the question is the sensitivity level at all.
4: Sure. Yeah, there wasn't really a conversation about it ahead of time. It was more so just an announcement to the family. Like, hey, this is happening. This is the date. And then it was really weird for a couple of weeks. It felt like my whole family was just kind of tiptoeing around me, like worried that I was going to go off. (laughs) That actually amplifies. Yeah, it made it worse because then I really was just sitting and would spiral out of control in my own brain. Like, I'd really just sit and think about it by myself for a really long time. So it didn't help anything.
2: I read the letter as well. You were articulate in both your letter and your uh, spoken version of it. It did strike me that in the letter you said that your sister's scheduled her wedding six weeks before yours. But as you spoke to us, he said a couple weeks
4: Yeah, it's six. It feels like a couple. Understood, (laughs)
2: understood. And I couldn't help but really zero in on that because I know that you've got a lot of emotion in this. I know that you feel blindsided that your sister didn't come and consult with you first and say, hey, you know, I'm thinking about scheduling my wedding right before yours. Mm -hmm. And perhaps, you know, that's something that you would be concerned about taking all the shine away from your moment and putting this right before yours. And it makes perfect sense to me that you have the concerns that you have, that you felt that you were owed a conversation before that as opposed Mm -hmm. to find out that the announcement had been made. Mm
4: -hmm.
2: I think it's perfectly natural that you're having the feelings that you're having. I think that what you want to be careful about is sort of swirling in it.
1: Mm -hmm. Yep, these big life events especially weddings like it amplifies anything because the stakes feel high it is a big day for you what is your general relationship like with your older sister
4: it's been better we're very similar people so we tend to butt heads a little bit more i would say i mean we also don't live super close to each other either so i don't think that helps the relationship what's but not, it's not super close yeah several hours Okay.
1: Are they both big weddings?
4: Yeah, unfortunately, they're going to be. How does your mom feel? Yeah, so that's kind of what's been tough because at first it almost felt like my family was taking sides between us and my sister and my mom are very close. So she's been very involved. Oh. So I'm also, you know, trying to figure out how can we not drive a wedge between the whole family? Because, you know, I was part of this, problem, not to my liking or my doing, but I also feel like I have to be part of the solution to fix it because it's surrounding me and my sister. So we have had conversations recently where, you know, they're acknowledging that maybe my mom has been a little one-sided. So I think they're coming around to it, but I think just because of the nature of my sister, and my mom's relationship, there just might be more eyes on her wedding. Have you thought about
2: pushing your wedding a little further down?
4: Yeah. Yeah. What's the financial
1: investment so far, Lizzie?
4: (laughs) Pretty financially invested at this point. I did look at our contract because my fiance and I at one point were like, should we just cancel it and elope? Like, is it worth it at this point? But we're too far down the road. Everything's booked.
1: (laughs) I think... This is one of those cases where the truly generous move will also be the road to your joy.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Happiness and resentment really cannot happen at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I think that happiness, as Anna pointed out, Forgiveness is going to be the key. Yeah, for sure. And maybe being candid to your sister. Say, hey, you know, like, I felt kind of blindsided by the announcement. You know, I wish that we could have communicated rather than me finding out after the fact. And, you know, I had some trouble with that and it hurt, but I want you to know that as upset as I was, I've forgiven you.
1: Yeah. I wonder if you reach out to her and at first... You know, maybe help in the planning. Would you feel close enough to her to do something like that? Like, kind of share a little bit in the excitement, or is it a little hard right now? I feel like in your face, it's like it's a little, and I don't blame you.
4: It, it's kind of tough. I'm a designer for a living. So I love working with color palettes and putting things together. And I would say my sister is very much on the opposite end of the creativity spectrum. So I have been pulled into a couple things and it, I don't know if it's just where my mindset is right now, but when I get pulled into help, it's like, oh, she just wants me to do it. (laughs) Right. That's kind of how it feels right now. Right.
2: To what extent is your sister aware of your feelings about this?
4: I think she's pretty aware. We've had some conversations where, you know, she would be like, "Even gotten to talk, but is this okay? And I'm like, it has to be okay because it's done already, but I wish we would have talked about it before, but that's pretty much all we've said about it. What's her
2: response to when you said that?
4: It kind of just led into, well, you know, we really wanted a short engagement and, you know, we want to move on to X, Y, Z with our life. So it kind of just went into another conversation. We didn't really sit on it for very long. Would you
1: say the timing of her wedding is more upsetting or is it that she didn't tell you? Or is it, that you wish you were closer. And this, you know, lack of communication kind of shines a light. I've never been
4: upset that she's getting married at the same time that I'm getting married. That's never what it's been about. It's more so the lack of communication that I think is what's upsetting me the most.
1: Yeah, this is the area that's kind of in your control a little bit. Yeah, that's fair. Steve, what do you think?
2: I just had a thought that in my circles of you know, people in recovery from addiction, there's a saying that would you rather be right or would you rather be happy? Mm-hmm. And I think that that applies here because you're absolutely right to be upset about this. I think that there's a perfect argument for why you did deserve a conversation ahead of time. You didn't get it. And, you know, that there's legitimate resentment here. But resentment and happiness are mutually exclusive concepts. And mm-hmm. I think that it's a real choice. And I, I would urge you to make the choice to forgo being right in the effort to be happy. And I think that happiness, a lot of the time, is something that we can choose. And a lot of times people just don't choose it. And it's maybe not even easy, but with some effort and sort of a deliberation, I think you can choose to be happy and that's gonna be the thing.
1: I wonder too, if you reach out to your mom, Mm -hmm. I wonder if you could use this as an opportunity to get closer to your mom and say, can I just vent to you for a second? And then I want to figure out how maybe you can help me strategize together about how we can plan both of our weddings Mm -hmm. and feel excited about both of them. Do you think your mom would be receptive to this? I think so.
4: And I think she's already kind of started trying because she's like looking at calendar dates, trying to figure out like the shower will be here, the special party will be here because they will kind of end up being like every other weekend from each other.
1: It'll really empower you if you are proactive in that, like the spirit of generosity. She can't not respect it. Mm -hmm.
2: I just can't help but wonder like what your thoughts are on just communicating that There's been a little bit of a ganging up going on, you know, like as much as we have this feeling that it stung to not have the communication and to hear the announcement that we were blindsided. It also stings a little bit to have mom and sis kind of ganging up on you, you know, like, I feel like there's a little bit of favoritism that hurts. You know, and that's why I bring it to you is what are your thoughts about this? But if we're reaching out to mom, let's consider that there's that dynamic and there are those feelings there, too. And, mm-hmm. and we want to we want to heal yeah, yeah. them.
1: Yeah. Do you think that would be an all right road to start? Because what will happen, I think, is the more generosity you project. You can kind of trick your brain a little bit.
4: I agree with you. I think it'll be multiple conversations, but it's going to have to start eventually. But I agree going into it with a better mindset will be probably the best, which is why I haven't acted on it yet, because I feel like I've been just sitting with my thoughts for a really long time and yeah. really need to get myself in a better place before I approach the conversation. Because the whole time I was thinking, well, I can't bring this up. Otherwise, I'm just going to be framed as overdramatic or wanting all the attention, which isn't really it either.
1: Right. It's sort of the lack of consideration. Your day wasn't thought about. Mm-hmm.
4: My
2: sister once said something, and it's proven to be true every single time it's ever come up, and that is... No good conversation ever begins with, we need to talk. <laughs> yeah. So, so I would yeah. just be careful about how you initiate yes. the conversation right. with mom. True. I would just say, I think that however you broach it, however you initiate it, I think is not important.
4: Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me. I truly admire like the safe space that you've created here and just so cool.
1: Lizzie, thank you so very much. Thank you. Yep, right on, Lizzie. Thank you,
4: Steve.
0: Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans.
1: Hi, Paula. Hello. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for your letter. Can
3: you tell our listeners what's going on? Sure. So my son, he just turned 19. He graduated from high school last spring. Decided to take a little time off because he didn't want to start and have COVID shut it down, all that stuff. He was supposed to work, save money. Didn't do that. Blew it all on in-app purchases in a video game. And then in September or October, he met a young lady in one of the video games, went to visit her in San Francisco for two weeks. I live in North Carolina. He stayed for two weeks with this young woman and her mother. Then she flew to North Carolina for another two weeks, which turned into two months. And she stayed with me for just a couple of days and I kicked them out because, yeah, there was a lot going on. And then I was waiting for her to go to have some talks with my son and, like, really get down to, like, what's really going on, because it's not about her. And he flew back to San Francisco with her a couple weeks ago, and now they live together with her mom. And they spend 24-7 side by side. They sit next to each other. He really did leave the nest. (laughs) Like, a lot in a really weird way. That was not what I was expecting. (laughs) How frequently do you talk to your son? Well, he was living with me. I'm not with his father anymore. we had 50-50. And when he turned 18, he moved in with me because he's kind of a mama's boy. So he was here all the time. And now he's just kind of like, poof, just evaporated.
1: Had he had girlfriends in high school?
3: This is the first one that he met. He had one that was in England that he met, that he talked to online for a while. And then they were going to meet and then COVID and no. So this is his first in-person person, person, and they've gone way overboard on making up for lost time. Uh Uh-huh. He is in it. He is
1: in it.
3: Yes. They went immediately from like, hi, nice to meet you, to they're in the shower together. And I'm like, hey, guys, um, I don't appreciate that. Small space. I can hear these things. I'm sin right here. No. No. And the girlfriend just, like, put her hood over her sweatshirt up and tied it and then laid down on the floor. And I was like, I don't even know what to do with this. That is not a reaction from an adult human that I expected. And it's not about her. It's really about, like, my alarming concern for him. And I'm trying to just be calmer and not, like, lead with my anger and disappointment and everything else.
1: Oh, my gosh. This is in my future, Paula. Just
3: wait. Just wait. (laughs) I have a
2: sort of digesting your situation. I can't help but feel that there are sort of two different components to it. And one of the components is your concern for your son and whether this relationship is healthy or not. And then the other component I can't help but feel is your concern for him being gone and the void that his departure has created. And I wonder if it would be helpful to really try to separate those two components and evaluate them as such, to ask yourself if the empty nest syndrome, how much of that is sort of informing the concern or amplifying the concern? You know, I think that there's just different things going on that feel sort of twisted up. So I think one issue could very much cloud the other issue. And I think that if you could be deliberate about separating them and kind of viewing them on their own, that you might be able to address the separate concerns more appropriately and accurately.
3: I have four kids. It's not like- oh, okay. <laughs> I'm more concerned about the addictive nature of it because we were not on the most solid because he spent over $20,000 on pressing buttons in a video game. Where did he come up
2: with $20,000? He was
3: working at a bougie ice cream shop where he made way too much money for a first job. Um, (laughs) And yeah, he was supposed to be saving that for a car. And like, we sat down and we deliberately planned how much he would be saving and how much he would be spending and where it would go. And instead, it was just this secret, like, oh, oops, I spent it all. Oh, no, I met a girl. So it's really not even about Her and their relationship, exactly. It's more like, I don't recognize this person and there is addiction in our family and I've seen addiction with people. I mean, we've all seen people with addiction at this point in our existence. But the fact that he could not stop compulsively spending all his money on this video game and now he cannot stop compulsively spending all his time with this person, I feel like there's something in him that he's trying to get out of these situations and I have just been getting so freaked out and, like, not my best self. And I can't find my best self. And when his siblings come to me with news of things, like, hey, her mom bought them a puppy. And I just, I'm like, what is happening? Oh, no. <laughs> I want to be. I want to be, like, this level, and I try very much to facilitate so my children aren't town criers. Like, I'm very much, I'm like, I want to hear about you from you. I don't want to hear these side stories about your siblings. Focus on you. But that's the only funnel. And my daughter keeps saying, you know, he's just mad at you. He's so mad at you. And, I'm like, I don't know that. I don't know. He hasn't given me anything. It's just a wall. Like, he's just tortoised in and just the girlfriend was like, I know that you don't approve of me because I'm 20 and I've never had a job and I dropped out of high school and I don't have anything going on and blah, blah. And I'm kind of like, well, those aren't great. But (laughs) also it's not about you and my approval. It's not my job to approve or not approve of you. You two have your thing. My concern is strictly on what is going on with him, that he's just diving in so deep.
1: Steve, do you remember what it was like to be 19?
3: Well, I'm struck
2: by the thought that this is why I got a vasectomy. <laughs> you know the idea of <clears throat> parenting of essentially your heart you know being outside of your body in harm's way it's too much for me, and I know that this position that you're in is such a difficult one. you know we want to control everything, we want everything to be okay for our children. And frankly, like you're in a position where you have to learn to let go. And that's, you know, arguably the toughest thing. But if you were able to summon up the strength to let go and let your son make his mistakes and learn his lessons, then, you know, maybe that's for the better. I think that, you know, you can't protect your son from the consequences of his actions because that would probably serve to do more harm than the growth and the learning that comes from making your own mistakes. And when you speak about addiction as well, I can't help but feel like there might be a little bit of codependence in you trying to control your son's situation so much.
1: I wonder if just simply calling or texting Just messages of love and support. Because I think that right now, that's kind of what you can do. You could send them, like, little puppy toys or
3: whatever. (laughs) At least it's not a grandchild. Oh, dear. (laughs) (laughs) I'd rather it be a puppy. 700 puppies.
1: Yeah. And, you know, maybe with, like, laying that kind of groundwork, just consistent, positive Nothing passive aggressive and don't necessarily expect a response. You sort of have to reframe this a little bit because he does need you and you need him and you guys will always be in each other's lives. And I kind of feel like you already know this, unfortunately, but what choice is there? Yeah. Just continue to show him love and show her love. And maybe at some point in like six months you can do a reach out to the mom.
3: I think that the story that I tell myself is like when I was his age, my parents did not give a shit what I was doing. I had all these things to do. And then I became a young mother and you know, it, changed my whole life and spun everything around so I think that the story that I'm telling myself is that I need to make sure that there is a voice for him saying hey slow down red flags look out here's a lane go in your own lane but also be careful I and don't know Paula. I think it's getting in the way
1: I think he's 19 <laughs> he is and he's he got will. a shower and a lady ready to that's hop in right I don't, that's I don't right. I, <laughs> <that's>, <laughs> get it that's right Yep, he is, like, loving it right now, <laughs> you know? So any hesitation on your end or, like, but be careful ideas there's are just going to bounce right off of him? Like, my mom doesn't get me. Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah, and it doesn't help. I feel like I'm kind of the only experienced adult even weighing in on it. I feel like the other adults are all like, "Ah, it'll just blow over. It'll implode. It'll be fine. It'll do whatever.
1: Yeah, but that also makes me think it might be good for you to limit how much you vocalize these concerns. Yeah. Like, when my family, when we all get talking about a cousin or something, like, it really snowballs. Yep. (laughs) You know? I think your hand has been dealt here for a minute. Yeah,
3: that is probably correct.
2: Paula, let your son know that you recognize as much as you're upset and this and that, that it's all just because you love him. Maybe ask him, say, son, like, please forgive me for how much I love you and the way that it makes me act.
3: I have said that. I've told him I'm very sorry I, I lost my best self there in dealing with them. And that's why I needed right. space. Awesome. <laughs> Is he happy in San Francisco? I don't know. He just went a couple weeks ago so far, just sitting in her house playing video games all day. So it's been like maybe a month now. Gotcha. When was the last time you talked to him? Before he left, he came over. Um, because I was kind of mad he just left all his stuff when he moved too. And I was like, adults don't move out and just leave everything. So he did come over and he was like, I'm just staying for a minute because I tried to get him to go to lunch with me or I tried to get him to like see a therapist with me or anything so we could just talk through and be in a better place. And he didn't really want to do that, but he did come by and he just gave me a big hug. And I was just like, I love you so much. You always have a place with me. I am always here for you. You know, you have my heart. I'm so sorry. I've been so upset and having such a hard time handling all this, but... You know, it's because I love you and I'm here and I'll miss you so much. And he was just like, I know, I love you too. And then he left. And so how
1: beautiful though like he knows this and he's known it all his life. I wonder if you call him and you say, What are you missing from North Carolina? I want to send you guys a care package. Yeah, that's true. Because if the conversations you guys have sort of revolve around this, like, so what so you guys didn't go out, you didn't leave the house today. yeah, still don't have a job. job. Yeah, yeah, that's (laughs) true. Right. Right. He won't ever want to call you, you know?
3: And his wallet is not my business anymore because he's 19 and on his own, but I just want him to, like, get on track for himself.
1: Yeah, and that'll happen. Mm-hmm. I think for the next few phone calls, be a little disciplined with yourself. I'm just worried that he won't ever want to call you. Me too. So I think your immediate goal is to just keep things light when you talk. Don't say anything when you think he's about to make a mistake and just— Keep hoping that he'll learn on his own. And meanwhile, you plant seeds of doubt about the girlfriend. <laughs>
3: <Yeah>. <laughs> I never wanted to be that harpy shrew, like, mother-in-law figure. <laughs> 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 and it's really not about her. But I know that to her, it's just this crazy lady is just in hysterics for some reason when I'm showering with her son. <laughs> What's the deal? And uh, <laughs> I know this and- is in my future.
1: Oh man, Paula, my heart goes out to you. I'm glad that you are close with all your kids though. Yeah. Paula, in a decade, can I call you?
3: Yes, you can call me anytime. Thank you so much for talking with us. It's nice to hear it from somebody who doesn't have anything invested in it. Yeah. Who can just step in and look and say, this is what I see. I really appreciate that.
1: Oh, Paula, I love you. On one hand, I kind of truly am happy for your son to get to experience like that headiness. It is such an education of how to navigate a relationship is a huge part of life. And maybe there's also an opportunity for you to be able to commiserate someday with her mom. I mean, at some <laughs> point, her
3: mom might be like, what? You know? Mm-hmm. It does give me something to lean into that feels better to lean into, well, at least he's open enough to take this risk. At least he's out there. At least yeah. he's taking steps and he's not shut off he's saying yes that does give me something fresh to lean towards and move into thank you so much
1: you really are an amazing mom
3: thanks so much you're gonna do great paula
1: thanks bye paula bye steve
2: it's been a joy and uh lots of love to you both